Hi everyone, great to be with you this Sunday and um, my name's Ian for those of you who don't know me and um, I'm married to La and we have two kids but one of them is only eight weeks old and so little Nathan is eight weeks old and uh, man he's keeping us awake as newborns do but I found the perfect uh, strategy for dealing with the exhaustion of a newborn child. You basically just eat a, back, a bag of chuckles every weekend and it, it feels like you're good to go. So that's been my strategy. I don't think it's a long-term strategy or a healthy one but it's working for me at the moment. And that's got nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about this morning, but um, we've been on this amazing journey through Holy Week, and it's the first time we as Common Ground have done a Holy Week, and it's been such an amazing time of formation and reflection and consideration around the realities of the, the few days before Jesus would go to the cross and all the implications and what it meant for him, what it meant for his disciples, what it meant for his enemies, and it's been an amazingly formative week and an encouraging week in many ways, and uh, for me personally, one of the big things that have stood out as we've gone on this journey of Holy Week is I've been freshly reminded at the meekness of Jesus. I love that word meekness. If, if you define meekness as great strength or power being withheld for the good of people or being used for the good of people, not for self, then, then that's what we see in Jesus over this week. We, we know at any point in this week when people misunderstood him or criticized him or falsely accused him or beat him or mocked him, at any point he could have revealed in full glory who he was and called down um, host upon host of angelic being and the armies of heaven were at his disposal. But instead of displaying his full might and power in this week, we've seen uh, a king and a savior who is willing to, to withhold his power to display ultimate love and, and a desire to be in relationship with people. Even those who hung him on the cross had uh, experienced God's mercy in this time as he withheld his, uh, his, his, his power. And it's such an uh, amazing week that we, we get to reflect on these things. That's what stood out for me. And I, I hope things stood out for you as we've gone on this journey. And, and this week culminates in today, Sunday, Easter Sunday. And uh, there's so much to talk about and so much to celebrate. But before we get to the celebration of Easter Sunday, as we've read this text, I want to set the mood for the, 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 the kind of atmosphere that would have been the reality at the beginning of the text as, as um, what these women would have been experiencing in this moment, what the disciples of Jesus would have been experiencing. So, so this text actually starts... Um, Yesterday evening, on Saturday night, what we, we see is that the, the disciples have experienced the crucifixion of Jesus. We spoke about that on Friday. And then they, would have, they buried him quickly. We know Joseph helped bury Jesus in a tomb, and that would have been done quickly. And then the Sabbath started, and, and nothing would have been able to be done on the Sabbath. Tools would have been put down, all work would have ceased, and it would have been a time of stopping, resting, and pausing. And what a difficult time this must have been for these women and what a difficult time this must have been for the disciples of Jesus as they reflected on the reality of what had just happened on Friday, the brutality and the injustice of what just happened on Friday. And in many ways, this is the mood, this is the atmosphere that we step into today's text in. And, and Friday, we heard about all the victory and the sense of victory and everything that Jesus was achieving on the cross. But as Jesus lay in a tomb with a giant rock rolled in front of it, I can guarantee you that as these disciples reflected over the Sabbath, the last thing they felt like was that Jesus was victorious. In fact, they probably were dealing with deep 
grieving, mourning, and a sense of loss, not just of Jesus, but of all, all the hope of a future that they would have with him and everything that he seemed to promise in the coming kingdom. And that's what we step into when we read verse 1, which says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And it's so interesting because we know from, from other gospel accounts that, that Joseph had already gone and retrieved the body of Jesus and put him in a tomb and anointed him for burial. So why do these women feel it necessary to, to go and do it again, to go and anoint? Well, we know it would have been done in a rush and there wouldn't have been an appropriate time for grieving and to say goodbyes to Jesus. But I think if you think about it, it comes down to these women knew and loved Jesus. They cared deeply about him. They were in relationship with him. They knew him. And, and they were mourning and grieving the loss of him. And in some ways, their desire to anoint him was a reflection of their affection, their love, and their concern for him. But also probably a huge desire to re restore some of the dignity that had been taken from him in that time as he was mocked and beaten and falsely accused and, and, and just treated as uh, terribly and all his dignity and shame was heaped up, uh, upon him. And in some ways I could see the desire of these women who knew him and loved him and cared for him having a deep desire to restore some of that dignity in this moment. But they had to wait. They had to wait for from the point at which Jesus was buried through the Sabbath. And, and that would have been Saturday night. And then we read here that on that Saturday night, at the moment that they were free to do work again, they went out and bought the spices. But then they would have to wait again, probably a sleepless night of grief and turmoil as they, they pondered the reality of death and all, of Jesus and all the implications. They would have to wait through that night till early the next morning. And on that morning, they would set out on a journey to encounter death. And very early, verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And here, early, it seems as if in their sleepless turmoil, they, at the very first appropriate time of the morning, as the sun was rising, they got up and said, let's start our journey towards this tomb. Let's start this journey towards encountering death. What do I mean by that phrase? Well, well we know that they, were, they started to walk towards the tomb where they knew they would encounter the dead body of Jesus. And they genuinely believed that he was dead. They were, they'd bought spices to anoint his body. That, that was the space they were in. They were in a space of grieving. And, and Anyone who's gone to a memorial kind of understands this journey of going to encountering death. There's something about um, the day of a memorial where you're waiting to, to go and you arrive. And there's just a sense of, of heaviness. There's a sense of grief. There's a sense of loss over that moment. It feels like an encounter with death. And I think the season that we're in, many of us have grown more familiar or have a deeper understanding of what it is like to encounter death. You know, there are a few things more jarring and final than encountering death. And I have a story I want to share. Um, I feel like God's got my number and he's doing some personal work in my own heart. Two weeks ago in, in my congregation, I got to preach on, on death from our origin series. And now again, I get to, to reflect on death. And I, I can't reflect on death and not think or use examples from or, or draw lines to the, the death of my brother um, just over a year ago. It's something that, that has wounded me deeply and I, I understand what it is to experience that grief. But, but I want to share a specific 
story in some detail that I think will help us understand where these women are at. Because you see, we know these words. If you've been a Christ follower for a while, you know these words and you know where they end. But if we disconnect our heart and our emotions from the very real human experience that they're experiencing in this moment, if we don't feel what they feel, I think we lose a bit of what is happening in this moment, what God is doing in this moment. You see, if we disconnect our emotions and what, from what they're actually feeling in this moment, I think we disconnect the, the reality of what this text is trying to communicate from us from the, the very real human experiences of our own, the depth of our emotions, feelings, fears, doubts, and pain. And so as we try to connect with their emotional state, hopefully it, it speaks to something of what's going on in our own hearts. And this text comes alive in a way that changes us and transforms us and informs the way that we do life. And so the story I want to share that will hopefully help us connect is that on the 8th of November, just over a year ago, I was in a prayer meeting in the Bosch venue. And I got a phone call from my mom. And as she phoned me, she said, Ian, the worst of news, your brother has died. And so began, began my journey towards encountering death. And I remember feeling bewildered and confused and not fully grasping and understanding, shaking as um, the shock set in. And I remember grabbing Garth and we walked outside and I told him and then we cried together, prayed a short prayer. And then I phoned the policeman that had phoned my mother to give her the news. And, and he said this to me, he said, Ian, you're going to have to come and identify Ali's body. We need someone to tell us that this, in fact, is Ali. And that was the moment where I realized I was going to encounter death in a very real way for the very first time in my life. And what followed was such a strange moment. I remember going home to get some stuff and then getting into Garth's car and Garth drove me to the Maitland morgue and we arrived at the Maitland morgue. And I, the whole time, just anxiety and bewilderment and confusion of like, is this really happening? Is this really, um, am I really about to see my brother and, and see him in this way? And I remember being so confused when we arrived and then they told us, no, you need ID documents. You need his ID documents. So we sent some of his friends to go and get that from his flat. And then the most bizarre thing, we walked across the road to a very normal coffee shop, a really nice coffee shop. And we had coffee and we ate breakfast. And it was so strange. Life was carrying on, but I was on this journey towards encountering death in a very real way. And then after breakfast, the friends arrived and we were walking back towards the morgue. And I remember thinking this thought, I don't know if I want to see him this way. And I wonder how much um, these women who knew and loved Jesus, who had experienced his brutal crucifixion on the Friday, were wondering the same thing. Do we really want to see Jesus this way? Yes, he would have been wrapped in cloth, but they would have seen some of the damage and the marks and the reality and been reminded of some of the reality that took place on the Friday. Do we really want to see him this way? They probably also felt some of the bewilderment as they walked towards this moment. In fact, I think a lot of the agony and concern and fear and, and wonder about what this encounter was going to be like is wrapped up in these words. Who will roll away the stone for us? They hadn't considered it. They were so in their grief. They hadn't even realized that someone would have to roll away the stone so that they could anoint the body of Jesus. As I, we arrived at the morgue, we went inside and, and the policeman was amazing and he, he explained to me what was going to happen and, and um, they walk you into this little room and there's this tiny little room and I remember standing in that room and there's this window but 
over the window is a curtain where they, they hide the person that you need to identify for a moment. They kind of give you a moment to prepare. And in some ways, the stone standing before them was, was a huge hindrance. And I had this little curtain before me. And, and as they pulled it back, there I saw him, Ali, my little brother. And um, I remember it hit me so hard, the finality of death, how final it is. And, and we're in a consumer culture where we're so used to being able to buy something new if it's broken or pay someone to fix it or move on to something else or go and gain wisdom on Google to figure out the problem that we're currently facing and then we can fix it. And we're so confident and capable as a generation and a time in history. And yet when you come and you encounter death face to face as I had to on that day in such a real way, it hits you like a ton of brick. We are finite we, and we do not have the power that we think we do. And in that moment, when you face your finiteness, your, your frailty, and you realize that we're not as powerful as we like to think we are, that can hit you with such force that it can push hope out of you. And I think this is what these women must have been experiencing as they moved towards this tomb to encounter death, to anoint the body of Jesus, and to try and restore some dignity to him. I think it's really important that we understand the emotional space and connect. That's my point of telling that story. This was a hard journey for these women as they moved towards the tomb. But what's so incredible and what's so different about their story compared to my story is that they, where they thought that they were on a journey towards encountering death, they were in fact on a journey towards encountering the power of God. Verse four, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. I love how this encounter with the power of God starts with, with the, the biggest problem that they had at the moment. How will the tomb be open? And they, they look up and they see that the, to, the stone has been rolled away. And I wonder what, what, what went through their mind. They must have been, who did this? Why has it been done? And, and they probably felt the full spectrum of, from, from a spark of hope all the way down to, is this sinister? Is some, somebody doing something with the body of Jesus? Are they trying to hide it or remove it for some reason? And they probably felt the fullness of that as they encountered the stone that had been rolled away. But instead of encountering the hopelessness and the, 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 the reality of death, what they actually encountered as they, they stepped towards this tomb was heaven, the kingdom of God, breaking into human history. Verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. I love that. When, when you encounter something of power, when you encounter something supernatural, when you encounter heaven breaking into this world, the right response is to be alarmed because you are encountering the very raw and real power of God. And I'm pretty sure that this messenger, this holy messenger of heaven was worthy of being alarmed. He must have seemed so other, so different, so not a part of this world. And, and as they tried in their bewilderment to figure out what is going on here, where in the spectrum, is this a, a reason for hope or concern? They were confronted with this man from heaven, heaven breaking in to this world. And there's something important we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus' entire ministry and life was mocked by the kingdom that was to come, about, uh, marked by heaven breaking into this world. In fact, the supernatural was such a reality of the life of Jesus that, that it indicates that the supernatural is the normal of the kingdom of heaven. 
that where we are to go, that everything that seems other and supernatural is actually natural. We see it in Jesus' baptism. In the moment that he's, he's baptized, the heavens open up and God the Father speaks over him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We see the Holy Spirit descend on him. And from that moment on, we see him have great authority over heavenly beings, whether good or evil. We see him have authority over sickness and death. We see him display the reality of the supernatural, what seems to us the supernatural reality of the kingdom, but what is the natural reality of our King and Savior, Jesus. You can't separate the supernatural from him. And these women had yet to realize that as they stood in a tomb, a place for us which marks death and, and, the, the, and hopelessness, in that place, in that tomb, which is what it means for us, which, which reveals our frailty and our humanity, in that place, what they were experiencing in that moment, they were standing in the very center of the most significant moment in human history. They were standing in the center of the fulfillment of prophetic words that had been made from the day of Adam and Eve and through every generation since. That there would be one who would defeat death and they were in the center of it, experiencing the full power, purposes and kindness of God. An incredible moment in history, an empty tomb. And then comes the message from the messenger. A message that they themselves would respond to and a message that every Christ follower since has responded to and declared with their lives. This in verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This message sits at the center of the Christian hope, uh, Christian faith. He is alive. He has risen. I love that phrase, he is not here. The tomb is empty. The messenger simply says, he's not here. It's empty. The, 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 and the reality of an empty tomb is something that everyone has to grapple with. You see, we can't just push Jesus into that space of a great way of thinking or collective human wisdom represented in a person. No, we can't do that because there is an empty tomb in history that demands that we make sense of it. And if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, I ask that you would, you would investigate the reality of the empty tomb all the evidence and all the implications of that. And then the angel says this phrase, he is risen. And we heard on Friday, as I said, of all that Jesus was doing in his death, what seemed like, like defeat and loss was actually victory in every way. And in this declaration, he is risen. What we are declaring is that he is who he said he is and he has done what he said he has done and he has had victory over the enemies of God. He is victorious. And then the angel almost questions their surprise. He almost questions these women's astonishment when he says, just as he told you, these things have happened just as he told you that they would. In the moment of, I think back to Holy Week, there's so many moments where Jesus was making it clear that, that he would have to be crucified, that he would have to suffer, and that he would be raised in power time and time. Throughout his ministry, there are indications of Jesus revealing this to his disciples, but they kept missing it. And now in this moment, I'm sure it started to dawn on them the reality of what Jesus meant. 
But again, if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, there is a, a reality of needing God to help you see these things. And if you want to go on an honest journey of, of exploring whether Jesus is who he says he is, part of that journey is probably a simple prayer going, God, if you are real, help me to see you. Help me to hear the truth about you. And if we, as Christ followers, I, I call us to live in a way that, that our lives reflect the reality that he's risen. That we're not like the disciples who kept missing it and fumbling the ball and, 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 and not being filled with the faith and the courage and, and, and the risk taking that they should have been if they'd fully understood the reality of what Jesus had been telling them time and time and time again. Let our faith be one that isn't based on philosophies or ideas or, or concepts, but one that is based on a person who is alive just as he, and done everything that he said he would do. And then the angel speaks about, there you will see him. There you will see him. And again, this is what makes Christianity different. This is what makes Christianity more than a philosophy or an idea or a good set of rules, is that there is a risen God who we can go and encounter. He literally tells him, go to Galilee and encounter the risen Jesus. And for what that means, if, again, if you're investigating the claims of Jesus, is that I'm not inviting you to a set of rules. I'm not inviting you primarily to a community. I'm not inviting you primarily to a way of life. Primarily, I am inviting you to encounter a person. And as you encounter that person, to, to get to know him and experience him in a way that transforms your life. Yes, if you've said yes to the person of Jesus and you've encountered him, you want to follow his ways, believing that they are good and that they are true. But first and foremost, we encounter a person. And for those of us who are Christ followers, my hope is that your faith is not based on your moral performance or following a set of rules or, or how you're doing on any given day, but that your faith, and it's not even based primarily on the momentum of this community, but that your faith is based on the reality that you've encountered Jesus, the living one. And because you've encountered Jesus, the living one, your faith is real and alive in relationship with him, that there is a vibrancy and intimacy, a connection and transformation and growth into his likeness because you know him, you enjoy him, you love him. And then finally, the phrase I want to pull out is, do not be alarmed. Right now in this moment, these women are experiencing the very real, raw power of God as he reveals his purposes, his plans, his power, and his kindness in this moment. And the very fact that the messenger says, do not be alarmed, brings calm that this power is not orientated towards our harm. It's orientated towards our good. I love the ocean. It's always such a good analogy of this. On any given day, you can stand back and wonder of its power. But there is a sense in which if you get too close to the edge, stand on those rocks as those waves are breaking, that it could harm you. And the difference between, between standing in awe of power or fear of power is knowing that it is orientated towards your good. And here the messenger says, do not be alarmed. What has happened here is good. It is good news. And in this moment, this messenger is, declaring and the message of the Christian faith is declaring that death has been defeated 
And Jesus goes before us in his resurrection body as the first fruit. And as we look to him, we can know that anyone who is in Christ, anyone who knows him, loves him, and has surrendered to him will follow in the same way. That we, yes, we will pass through death, but we will pass through death into resurrection life and resurrection bodies into the future. And where these disciples in the moment of his crucifixion thought all hope had ended, that they had been winded by the death of Jesus and all hope had been knocked out of their lungs In this moment, they take a deep breath and they realize, no, hope has actually been achieved in this moment. I have hope through death. Death does not have the final say. I said that in the moment that I saw Ali, I was hit by a profound and deep sense of hopelessness as the the reality that I couldn't fix this, no one could fix this hit me. And I came face to face with the finality of death. And about a millisecond later, by the grace of God, I felt hope rise up in my heart. And I remember praying this prayer, Jesus, death does not have the final say, you do. And you are good and you are kind and you are powerful. I surrender my brother to you and I trust him with you. And I had hope for him. And and the Bible says so clearly and simply that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. It is that simple. Call on the name of Jesus. And I remember reading through Ali's journal after his death and there were times in that journal where he said, he called on the name of Jesus. Jesus, I need you. I need you. And because of that, I have great confidence that he will be with Jesus. He will be experiencing a resurrection body. And my great hope is that his resurrection body isn't shinier than mine. How do we know that we've gripped this? How do we know that this has gripped us? How do we know that this is something that isn't just true in our heads, but something that is true in our hearts, something that that will actually affect the way that we live, the way that we see this world, the way that we see everything? Because for these women, everything was changing in this moment as they were silenced in wonder of God. Verse 8 And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling had astonished and seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I love that. Astonishment seized them. So powerful was this moment. So powerful was it to stand in a tomb where you expected to encounter death, but what you've experienced is life eternal, the very power of God to bring life where death had taken it. So powerful was that moment. So powerful was the moment of encountering this heavenly messenger. So powerful was this moment of of experiencing heaven breaking into the here and now that astonishment seized them and they were afraid. I think it's appropriate that when we, we stand before things of great power and we come face to face with the reality that we're not the ultimate power in our lives and we're not the ultimate power in this universe, we're not, that, that, that everything isn't orientated towards us, but actually there, there is someone of greater power, worth and value that exists in this universe. When we come face to face with that, fear is an appropriate response. But fear is not the appropriate place to stay when you understand that that power is orientated towards our good. And as they stood, and, and when you add the goodness of God to the, a healthy fear in his power together, 
what you get is awe and wonder. A sense of wonder. A sense of beholding something that is great and beautiful and majestic and worthy. And that grips our hearts. We should be astonished by that. And so I ask you, Christ followers, when last were you so taken, so astonished by the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection power that he put on display? When last were you so astonished by that that you were brought to a place of silence before him? Where no word seems good enough, no phrase seems worthy, that, that you just understand that you are seeing something so other, so beautiful, so good, so glorious, so mighty, so powerful, that your heart, your mind, your fears, your doubts, your concerns, everything is silenced. And the most appropriate response before him is to just stand there and be still and be quiet and let your silence be your worship. Because that's what happens to these women in this moment. They are silenced to the point of awe and wonder that caused them to tremble before him. And their worship was their silence. Christ follow, if you are incapable of being silent before God and let your silence be worshipped, slow down and pause and ask him to show you the fullness of the reality of what took place on this day. These women and the followers of Jesus, his disciples, would not be silenced forever. In fact, this, this, this reverent silence before a wonderful, good, kind, and glorious God would result in them not being able to stop declaring the goodness of this message. They would declare this message with every breath in them, pretty much every disciple being executed for declaring this message. And followers of Jesus through century after century after century, willingly giving their lives to declare this message because it is so good. So my hope for us as a community is that we would have moments of being silenced in the awe and wonder of God. And as we sit in that place and we let God do his work in us and fill us with his presence and his spirit, that it would cause us to be filled with a great courage and confidence to declare freely and boldly the message that sits at the middle of our faith. He is risen. He is alive. He is who he said he is. I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond. Father, our great hope is that these words, the story of these women who thought that they were going on a journey towards encountering death, but actually encountered the full power of God at work, wouldn't remain words in a page, but would, would meet the power of your spirit in such a way that our hearts are silenced in awe and wonder. Father, as we come before you, we really do just want to be, be quiet we want to let you do what you want to do. So that's what we're going to do now. So I'm going to give us a moment to just be quiet before God. And let your prayer be, God, help me to be astonished by your finished work on the cross and the power of your resurrection. Amen.